What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Today's interview is with Scott Shigeoka. Scott spent his entire career working in journalism and working with creatives. He led the community programs for creatives at IDEO, and now he's been traveling the country working to bridge divides between people with differing points of view, whether it's on the different sides of the political divide, which is raging right now in the U.S., or people who have different opinions on global warming, working to connect leaders from the queer and religious communities. He's learned a ton about what it means to bridge divides, and he's gonna share his step-by-step process for how to bridge divides between people who have differing points of view. So these are lessons for anyone who's building community or doing any sort of people work where you're trying to manage conflict or connect people and help them find better understanding with each other. So much good stuff in here, enjoy, let's dive in. All right, Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Hot start. So very excited to have our conversation. I think it's extremely good timing in the world that we're living in today. And you and I were just talking about how community and connection and managing conflict is in very high demand these days, given the state of the world. Mm, Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about the election, thinking about what do we do now? And what are some of the things we think about moving forward? Yeah, so I think it's not only on my mind, but it's on many of our minds and hearts. Absolutely. We've known each other for several years now, dating back to your work at IDEO, and and you've given a couple talks at CMX Summit. You're always a big hit there um, and always have such a unique perspective on community and connection. So why don't we just start off with just sharing a little bit of your story and, and maybe just share a little bit about the kind of work that you've been doing recently. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in Hawaii uh, in a small town called Aiea. I grew up in an intergenerational household with my grandparents, my folks, and then my sister and I. But we've always had large gatherings um, with her family for the holidays. One of the things that I grew up really understanding about myself is that my mind and my spirit tends to be very imaginative. Stories have been the currency for my entire family, for my whole life. It's something I perfected in the treehouse in my yard <laughs> that was built on my mango tree. And it was actually the, the last project I did with my dad before he went into prison for a couple of years. And it became this like safe space for me because we lived in a really small house, like 700 square feet with a lot of people. You know, I grew up living in the living room um, until I got my own room, which was like a huge moment for me. And mm. it was a, a place of spaciousness and a place for me to really look back at my life as a young child and understand my world around me, including the natural world. So stories have always been a part of who I am and will continue to be um, for for my whole life. I went to university in the mainland. That's what we call the continental U.S. when, when you grew up in Hawaii. And I majored in journalism. Again, like the power of story, the power of curiosity of trying to understand where others are coming from and then telling stories about that. And then I found my way to D.C. after this hitchhiking journey. I don't come from independent wealth. You know, I come from a, a line of plantation workers and fish factory uh, workers. And what I learned on, on that journey is that there are so many stories or so many different 
kinds of people in our country. And it, it started this like 15 year exploration of really understanding who are those people? What are those voices? How are we judging people who, who we don't know? Are there other paths forward for us to, re- to really unify? Because I don't come from wealth, I ran out of money and ended up in Maryland and I waited tables and I found my way into this writing group. Um, and the teacher was actually an editor at the Washington Post. She gave me my first job out of college um, writing for the Washington Post as a music journalist. So I like left my job at my restaurant. And then weeks later, I was like writing stories about Empire of the Sun and Big Boy from Outcast and interviewing folks as they smoked joints and filled the rooms, you know, with like clouds of weed. And just like my world was like turned around, you know, um, completely. And I, and I learned about the stories of these creatives and really thirsted for, for creativity in my own life. And I wanted to go beyond just the story. And so I traveled to Iceland and I produced music festivals and I worked with musicians and artists, helped them get their careers launched, brought them together for deeper, more spiritual work of of understanding like why, why do they do this? Why is this important? And I found this really interesting connection between music and environmental change, especially in Iceland where you have, you know, folks like Bjork and, Sigaross and of Monsters and Men and Kaleo, mm-hmm. these groups that really care a lot about the environment. That's what the focus was. I saw this opportunity for music and the arts to really start movements in countries or even in the world. And as I was coming into my 30s, I realized I had never had a boyfriend. I'm queer. And I was like, wow, like my career is booming, but I just don't have anything going on in my romantic life. And I should probably focus in on that because that that feels important to me. And I plotted on this map uh, the the queerest cities in the world. And I ended up picking San Francisco. I moved into the Castro (laughs) and um, had a really interesting um, dating life, which is for another podcast and another time. But what's the second queerest city in the world? New York. But I, I picked uh-huh. New York, Berlin, and San Francisco. Okay. And they, they all spoke to me for different reasons. I ended up, in the context of this conversation with community, you know, rooting into a sense of place. I've, I've lived in the Bay Area, basically, for, for you know, almost the last decade and have really, you know, rooted into this work of building communities. And that's how I ended up at IDEO, which is where we met. IDEO is a design firm. And I really supported and led a practice around is there a way to meaningfully design with communities not for communities and Mm. what are the ways that we can help our partners or clients do this work so that they can learn from the mistakes that others have have gone through but also so we can encourage them to take big leaps of faith because i think this work of building communities is really scary and pushes people out of their comfort zone so that was a lot of my work of guiding leaders um, with making big moves in that space because it's important to build meaningful relationships in your company or with your customers. But um, as um, Trump got elected in 2016, my focus had really started to shift. And that's been the major body of my work since um, around the divisions in our country. And how do we actually bridge our divides? What, What can we do to overcome these stereotypes, this hate, this violence that's happening um, across politics, across racial divides, the age segregation, uh, you know, faith-based um, violence. So that, that's been a major focus of my work, and community is a big part of that. 
I have so many questions already. Uh, you have such a diverse range of experiences with community and connection. And I feel like we can do three episodes in each phase of your journey. Let's start with kind of the work that you've been doing recently. Mm-hmm. What a wild time to be doing this work. And now we just came up on the most recent election and things are feeling more divided than ever. What kind of work have you been doing to bridge those divides? How, how have you been doing that? Yeah, I think the big question everyone's thinking about right now that's resting on our hearts is, you know, we're, we're approaching the holiday season. We just got off of this really tumultuous election. And our families are really diverse, typically. You know, we have aunts and uncles and cousins and parents and grandparents who vote in different ways than we do. Mm. And I think the question that's resting on our hearts is, you know, what do we do? How do we keep these relationships strong? Is there even a way? Um, you know, so many of us, myself included, can remember times where we get into heated conversations and they make us feel uncomfortable. They make the people we love feel uncomfortable. Um, some of us even have hardline rules of not talking about politics at all when you come together on these family or even friend uh, gatherings. And so that, that's the question that, that I've been really exploring is how do we do this? How do we lean in to the work of healing the country? How do we actually, you know, heal the divisions that exist in our family, in our friend groups, in our communities? And also, how do we heal the divides that are within ourselves, you know? So a big part of my work is, is A, like, what can we learn from science, from the field of psychology, right? Which deals with a lot of conflict. You think about marriage and family therapy as an example. What can we learn from those practices that we can take into this space? And there's actually 14 skills that I've identified and I package into a little playbook called the Bridging Differences Playbook. It's free and it's available. I did it with UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. And we put it out to the world with no marketing dollars behind it. And a quarter million people downloaded it in the first three months. It just really speaks to the hunger that people have and the thirst people have to really understand how to navigate this question. That kind of touches on interesting points where, you know, some of the language you're using is like healing the division and and pointing to, you know, marriage and relationships as an example. Mm -hmm. Uh, For something to heal, I guess that has the assumption that it's a wound or, or something bad that we want to fix. And in relationships, you know, people are coming into it with like, all right, we have this shared goal of we want to be in a healthy relationship. And so they have to have that intention. I guess my question is like, is division always bad? Is it a natural part of humanity? Is it is it always necessarily a wound that needs to be healed? And, and do people need to want to bridge that division in order for it to work? Right. I think there's a difference between disagreement and you know divisiveness that could lead to fascism or violence, right? You know, disagreements and conflict, when it's healthy, can be really important. It helps us understand different perspectives. It helps us challenge our own assumptions and our own biases. It helps us see that there are multiple ways of moving through this world. And those are all things that we should acknowledge. And we should be able to have conversations about that. And when we do that, we start to understand you know, maybe why people are so fearful. 
maybe why people have these beliefs that are so counter to ours, why people are voting in different ways than, than we might, um, or support a candidate who we believe is, is, you know, abhorrent, but to them is like a path out of their current reality. And so I think that's important because a lot of people think bridging is about building consensus and building common ground. And it's really not in my eyes. It's really about building healthy dialogue, leaning into tensions having healthy disagreements and conflict, right? So that we can avoid fascism, so we can avoid violence, so we can avoid some of these these harder evils. So quarter of a million people have downloaded the guide now to bridging. Uh, what were some of the elements that you describe in there for someone who wants to learn how to bridge conflict more efficiently? What would your advice be to them? I actually went on this road trip pre-COVID across the country from basically the beginning of 2019 up until you know, February of this year. And what I realized when I traveled to Trump rallies, when I went to churches, when I lived in Appalachia um, for a number of months in a small town, I, I recognized that there was so much curiosity that I had to lean into in order to have these conversations and a lot of resiliency to protect myself. So if I had a conversation with someone who was saying things that were racist, which did happen sometimes, then I had to question myself and say, is this happening because this is the vocabulary they have and this is the way that they live and move through this world? Or is this ideology like a center point or centerpiece to the way that they live? And And it's actually critical to how they see the world. If it's a vocabulary thing, then I think like that's something that I feel safe you know, working with, and I can be in conversations with that person in that bar, you know, out at that concert, out in that restaurant or out in the town. But if it's, you know, their actual ideology and they're looking to harm people based on race, like that's something that makes me a little bit more uncomfortable. And I would have to really make a decision on whether I feel safe or not to have that conversation. And so I realized, A, like, how do I actually build up that ability to have awareness to have those kinds of inner dialogue, um, you know, as I'm talking to someone who has a very different view from me, how do I make that call of whether I choose to stay in this topic um, with this person, choose to stay in this relationship or choose to put up a boundary to protect myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And a big part of that was finding the practice of mindfulness, right? Which is one of these 14 skills that we put into the playbook Um, because mindfulness and bridging actually go hand in hand. You know, when you do, you know, a meditation for five to 10 minutes each day, uh, when you do a walk and you really focus and notice on the things around you, you become more attuned to not just what other people are doing, their behaviors, their words, um, but also what's going on inside of your body. Mm -hmm. And that's so key to bridging um, to protect yourself. It also made me realize that not everyone should bridge, right? And that's a key thing that we put into the playbook is is language that bridging isn't for everyone. You know, some people have to uh, have different roles to play. Um, Maybe they have the role of being an activist and really being provocative and divergent. And that is so important too, right? I think there's room for everyone. So with the mindfulness, just to jump in. Yeah. So it sounds like a key element of that and having practiced a lot of mindfulness myself and and read a lot about it. Um, A lot of it's about kind of like non-reactiveness or at least becoming aware of how you react to things. So in the context of, you know, managing one of these conversations or facilitating a conversation, whether it's with you and someone else or amongst people who disagree with each other, 
it sounds like going back to their vocabulary, maybe the way they say something isn't actually aligned with their beliefs or by being non-reactive, you open up an opportunity to find understanding or common understanding if that exists. Is, is that the idea? It's about um, placing distance between yourself and the emotions that you might be having in that interaction and taking a third person's perspective and really seeing and distancing yourself so that you can regulate your emotions, come with more clarity and not be so explosive maybe in your reactions, right? And the other part of that is having you know, self-awareness. So understanding where you're coming from, what's happening in your body, do you feel safe right now? What's, what feelings are coming up for you and how that might be impacting the way that you're having the conversation or, or be, how you are in that interaction. And then there's also like this mindfulness of, of the, uh, the quote unquote other. So where are they coming from? Like, what is the context in which they're sharing this information? Do, do, are they actually in a, a place where they feel unsafe, right? Like maybe they're, they're telling you this at a family gathering where they are the only person that voted for Trump, right? And so mindfulness is so key for a lot of different reasons. But in the end, it's about, you know, not being so explosive in your, in your reactions. It's about seeing the person that you're talking to in a more humane way and really connecting to yourself and your body so you can make those calls. Mm. When I was going around the country, though, I didn't have this language. Like, I didn't know what I was doing was mindfulness. You know, and that's a big part of why I created the playbook was, you know, there are so many of us who, again, are trying to ask that question of, what do I do when I go back home for the holidays? How do I stay in relationship with people who have very different views from me? Or how do I do this work with people who look different from me? or have different perspectives than me. Right. So it was about putting a body of work together that could guide people um, through that, that question and exploration. I'm curious, quick about like the logistics of your trip. Like how, how did you set up these conversations? Like what format did that take? Are you sitting down privately with people? I know you went to, you know, Trump rallies and, and places where you could have conversations with people with differing opinions. But how did you set this all up? Yeah, there was the, you know, sort of recklessness of the way that I first approached it. There's two phases and the recklessness was actually really bad because it, you know, bridging can actually be really harmful and consequential if it's not done right. And that was something I really learned um, is that I need to do a lot of, of skilling up and I need to really do this work well so that I don't have a negative interaction with someone that then you know, reinforces their stereotypes or further isolates them into their bubble or into people who are like them, right? And that's mm-hmm. that's that's what I want to avoid. But, you know, to be honest with you, there, there was a recklessness because I didn't have the skills, I didn't have the language, and I just kind of mm-hmm. went out. I went to churches, <laughs> I went into bars and started talking to people, I went to Trump rallies and just started talking to people. And for the most part, like most of my interactions were good. You know, I had fine conversations, I, you know, made some, you know, connections where they learned a little bit about me, I learned about them. But I wouldn't say that any of those conversations were transformational. Like, I don't know if I walked away from that first phase feeling transformed by what what I heard. And I'm almost certain that the folks I talked to weren't transformed as well. And that's the hope for bridging is that we both walk away changed by our conversation. So, so there was this sort of second phase of my trip which was much more sophisticated. And I started to learn things like, wow, it's really important 
to have thought and intention when you design the space of people who are very different coming together to have conversations. Like you can't just mm-hmm. like approach someone and be like, Hey, let's talk about the fact that we voted in different ways. You actually need to <laughs> set that up. You need to have norms. You need to have agreements. Uh, you need to, you know, have the right kind of preparation. So people feel psychologically and physically safe in those spaces. Power needs to be shared and equal as possible. And there, there needs to be an affirmation that everyone is there with the, the, the similar intents, right? To not only share their perspectives, but to really hear the perspectives of others. And so as I started to design these spaces with an, ex- an example being in Minnesota of bringing LGBTQ activists and faith leaders together, there were so many conversations I had with both groups, you know, before we even got them all into the same room. And mm-hmm. I can go through those two areas because I'm both spiritual and I am also queer. And I've done a lot of work of being in relationship with and supporting people who are religious. And, and I think that that made it feel safer for a lot of the, the clergy and religious leaders I worked with, uh, but also someone who's queer and has done a lot of LGBTQ activism, the you know, queer, non-binary, and trans folks felt really safe with me too. And so, you know, a lot was hanging on this this trust that they had with me and our relationship. And I, I had to do everything in my power to make sure that when they all came together uh, in this room, that that was going to go off without a hitch. Right. And so there was a lot of designing that had to happen before we had that conversation. And it did. It ended up going really well. People cried. Um, church leaders wanted to shift some of the things about their own culture. Mm-hmm. There was even one evangelical pastor that said, like, maybe I should think about having you. He was talking to um, an amazing trans uh, Latino woman uh, who uh, about you actually coming to do a sermon at our church, you know, to mm. talk about wow. you know your life story because I'm so touched by it, and I think yeah. that transformation can only happen if you actually set it up properly. So, what does that design look like? What are what are the criteria that needs to exist for bridging to be able to happen successfully? It's a super good question because there's so much nuance, like you need to do so much research and have so much of an embodied understanding in order to hold the space of an intergroup conversation like that. So if you're interested in doing this, um, but you are asking the question of like, how would I even get started? I would highly recommend that you bring in an ex- like experts, people with that embodied experience, people who can help you actually design that space. Experts in bridging or experts in the... Like, do you have to fully understand the the two sides yeah. and, and do that? Is that the kind of research you're talking about before bringing them together? Yeah, you want both um, the expertise of how to have intergroup dialogue, how to you know have conversations across differences, how to manage conflict and tensions mm-hmm. and navigate that. But you also want this lived or embodied experience and expertise, right? Um, this mm-hmm. knowingness of like language, for instance, right? Like there are certain words that might be triggers and might shut down conversations. Uh, there are certain ways you might be approaching or setting up the conversation so that you're really honoring the cultural context of people that are in that room. And so they're both really, really important. And so if you don't have that, a, like bring those people on in meaningful ways and and don't just take my words off of a single podcast episode and think that you can now design these spaces. Right. And so just I want to like understand specifically too, you know, is it as, let's say I wanted to bridge two groups, but I'm not an expert in those groups and their perspectives and, and their their views. 
is it important for me to understand both sides or is another option to like bring in an expert from each side in a way that can kind of help facilitate and and they understand they're kind of the ones who bring that perspective I think it's always healthy and meaningful for us to go through the individual process of learning about different perspectives and experiences and to build our own capacity of an understanding of all the ways that people live in this world. That's definitely Mm. key. And it's not an either or, it's like an and partnering with people who work in these spaces or live in these spaces or are directly impacted by the issues that you're going to talk about and not just bring them into the conversation, but also bring them into meaningful leadership roles to actually design what it looks like, to Mm -hmm. talk about the types of questions you might explore and to talk about what the outcomes might be. Both of that are, are so, so important. Okay. So the first step is to really understand the two sides and do your own research and go through that process. And then what's next if you want to, you know, facilitate this bridging between others. Yeah, the next is about understanding power. So what are the two groups that you're bringing together? And what's the context of power that these groups hold in society and in this conversation? So a lot of what Emile Bruno's um, research, um, who was an um, amazing scientist in, in this space um, and researcher in this space, he, he sadly passed in October, but he did some really incredible work and his, his lab continues to do really incredible work around dialogue. And the whole exploration he had was he was a high school teacher and he would bring, you know, these white students and, you know, POC students together to have conversations. And he would realize that like the white students would walk away and, and they would get a lot out of it. They would get some benefit. They'd be like, hmm, I like understand so much about these POC students and their perspectives. But when he talked to, to black and Latinx and Asian students and, um, uh, indigenous students, you know, they would say like, nothing's really changed for me at all. Like I just feel more exhausted because I like spent so much time a listening to the perspectives of white students. And then also sharing my own perspective, which might've been, you know, like traumatizing or really emotionally exhausting. Right. And so mm-hmm. what, what he was pointing to and what he later confirmed through research is that when you bring a, a marginalized group together with a group that has power in society, the wrong way to design those, that dialogue or that interaction is to give them each equal time to share. Like, White folks, you get 50% time to share. POC folks, you get 50% time to share. And everyone should like listen and, and talk. Actually, the right way to do it is there's something called perspective taking, which is you are listening. You're in the role of listening to someone's perspective. And then there's perspective giving, which means that you're in the role of like giving your perspective and talking about yourself or, or the experiences you've had or how your group is impacted in society. And the actual, the research he's done has shown that when you give people of color or marginalized groups the opportunity to give their perspectives, and then you, you have the listeners who are white or in a more powerful group to be the role of listening, that is mm. the most impactful way to shift uh, mindsets and to shift behaviors that last long beyond that conversation. And he's tested this with Israelis and Palestinians. He's tested this with white Americans and Mexican immigrants. And, you know, he's found that it's clear for both of these groups that uh, for white Americans, for instance, or Israelis, their attitudes changed and improved 
towards the groups that they were listening to, but nothing would happen if they were, the, if they were the ones that were speaking and being listened to. There's also this like really interesting work about these dialogue interventions that can actually backfire for members of these marginalized groups. So when you think about things like collective action, right? That actually takes a hit for marginalized groups when you successfully run these programs where white folks get 50% of the time to to speak and POC folks get 50% of the time to speak. It takes a hit on collective action because then marginalized groups stop blaming groups that are in power, let's say white folks, and, and these power structures that exist. They stop blaming those systems and they say, oh, it's okay. Like they didn't really mean it. Um, and they start accepting the status quo more. And so this type of activity isn't really helpful for members of the marginalized group because their, their will to change things actually weakens. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes more counterproductive. So you actually want people to feel more empowered to look at the status quo and be like, nah, like we need to change this. Like we actually need to look at these systems that put certain groups or people into power and actually radically shift them. Not, not, not situations that make people more complacent or more complicit. Does that person, the person who's in a position of power, do they have to come in with an intention to understand the, you know, the white person understand the person of color, for example, like, do they have to come in with that goal and intention? Yeah. Because otherwise, like, you're bringing them in and you're like, you're just going to listen to this person tell you, you know, their story. And it's probably going to make you become much more aware of your privilege and the experience of of people who are being, you know, exploited. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like they have to kind of come to that table on their own merit. hundred percent. Yeah. So the first step, right, is the getting the experts to help co-design that and be involved in the conversation. The second part is understanding power and making sure that you have a nuanced and sophisticated uh, perspective on how to design these kinds of conversations or interactions. And then what you're talking about is like the third part, which is how do you actually have these conversations and how do you make sure they're actually effective, right? And the way that you would do that if you assign, let's say, a person who is in power the role of being the listener is they would practice uh, something called looping. So they would really deeply listen to what this person who is a part of a more marginalized group is saying, and then they would loop it back to them. They would say, here's what I'm hearing um, that you're saying is this correct? And that gives gives the, the person to say like, yes, that is correct. You're hearing me 100%. Or say like, no, you're actually not hearing me completely. Here are some ways that you could be hearing me more or some things you missed. Um, and so those types of practices that you can do like looping in a conversation is what's going to make that really impactful. And, you know, when I talk about marginalized groups and power, like it's not just about race. It even is in the context of a company, right? You have maybe leaders and employees. Mm. Employees might feel marginalized. They don't set their own payroll. They don't um, have a say in the decision-making that's happening in that company. And so if you're bringing everyone together, let's say there's some kind of crisis that's happening in your company, there's a lot of differences that are happening. You assign the leaders the role of the listener, and then you give the the ability for your employees and staff and teams to actually share their own perspectives. And then you loop back what you've heard and make sure that your understanding is correct. And just that act Mm. is going to radically shift the perspectives on both sides. Mm. You as a leader are going to more deeply understand the grievances and the harm that is happening uh, to people that you are leading 
And then people who are employees who aren't in leadership roles, let's say, they're going to feel heard. They're going to feel like they had an opportunity to actually share their perspectives. And they're also not going to like settle for the status quo. They're going to want to shift these power structures and that's going to make your organization better. And so this is applicable in so many different ways, not just like the political divide, not just racial divide, but even like tensions and differences you might experience at your workplace. So it's it's really fascinating. And it sounds like, I mean, I can imagine how you set up the right circumstances, the right environment. You're going to have a pretty high batting average of success of, of people coming out of that experience with better understanding of each other, maybe not, you know, completely turning the corner of being fully inclusive, but understanding it. But the amount of work that it takes and the amount of, and how like intimate and one-on-one this process is, makes me wonder, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, you know, kind of zooming out in the broader landscape of the US and the world and the division that exists and just how much of these conversations are happening so much more passively and in large groups, thanks to social media and the internet, like how do we apply these lessons and these processes to, you know, bridging the divide on a grand scale of a country or the world? Yeah. Oh, so many thoughts there. I mean, one is what I learned at IDEO is that they were able to make the role of designer something that everyone wanted a piece of, right? Now everyone wants a design co-founder. Now everyone is hiring for UX designers when at first it was like, oh, you're a designer. Do you design interiors or furniture or fashion? They've really expanded what this role does and created a space for people who are now being paid and you know are able to do this work in a more meaningful way and mm. all the way up to the top to leadership. Um, you're seeing the same thing happen with diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Often we were doing this work for free. Like we were not getting paid to run these ERGs. We're not getting paid to have these conversations about diversity, about equity and inclusion. But now we are starting, that's starting to change. You're starting to see some companies, you know, bring this kind of mentality uh, into their leadership, their C-suite, into their boards. And, you know, although some are doing it just from a place of like tokenism, I do see some organizations that are doing this really thoughtfully. And I think the next frontier is this work of bridging. I think that, you know, organizations, for instance, need to be hiring like bridgers and residents. Like we need to be Mm. creating new roles for for bridging because we know that well-managed, diverse teams come up with more innovative, more creative, more impactful projects. It's on the for-profit and the the four impact sides of things. And so if you're bringing all of this diversity together, that needs to be super well-managed Who knows how to well manage that? Those are folks with this expertise of bridging, right? And so that feels really exciting to me. But even more so than that is like on a societal level. You know, I think that, you know, we're starting to see this in the environmental space uh, and in the public health space. We're seeing like hundreds of thousands of people being recruited uh, in this professional capacity to steward the environment or to, you know, work as nurses and doctors or on the front lines of our, of our healthcare system. And I think the same needs to be done in repairing the social fabric of our country because the organizations and the institutions that did do that in the past are no longer as relevant, especially to younger people in our country. Take religion, for instance. You know, millennials and Gen Z folks are 
the most unaffiliated religious folks mm. across any generation historically, right? But they tended to be these institutions where people would come together across age, across socioeconomics, across race, and, and that does not exist anymore. So what are we going to do to create spaces, to create communities that allow us to have that more integrated approach, right, in society. Mm. And that's super exciting to rethink those spaces. And you're starting to see that with efforts like um, Civic Saturdays, for instance, or, you know, you, you start to see that with the, the ways that movements are being built. So I think there's a lot of possibility there. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the work that you're doing is also a way of kind of scaling this work because you're doing it publicly and visibly and creating content around it. And it's like the same tools that have been used to divide us by showing us content that's divisive could potentially create more bridges at scale by showing us more content of people who were previously divided, you know, finding common ground and finding understanding. Um, And so I think the work you're doing is actually hugely impactful and also shows other people that this concept of bridging is something they can do as well, as well as like, your focus on, in, in some circumstances, leadership within these different organizations, because it's our leaders who often set the example and the tone for what ends up being these kinds of divisive topics. And if we can help our leaders find common ground, then maybe they change their tune as well. And, and they bring more understanding into the messages that they put out in the, into the world. That's right. Like leaders create and foster the kinds of cultures that make masses of people either lean more into division or lean more into bridging and healing and understanding, right? And so Mm. that really needs to be understood. And you can see that across every facet of society, whether it comes to like looking at leadership within a country or looking at leadership within an organization. But, you know, what I, what I realized in this work is that there's so many incredible organizations that are bringing like 10 folks here or like 40 folks here, or like even like 80 folks here together all across the country, across divides across differences and they're facilitating these really sophisticated nuanced programs and they're they're great they're honestly great and we need to continue to support these kinds of programs and we are being divided and polarized at a scale that we've never seen before right we've moved into a type of society where someone can press a button and literally create ecocide and genocide. You know, we have built technology where messages can be, you know, implanted into people's brains, like billions of people's brains. And so, you know, the the rate in which we need to heal and bridge now needs to meet that as well. And so in addition to supporting these incredible grassroots and community-based programs that are bringing people together all across this country, we also need to be thinking about like, how do we do narrative change work? How do we change the culture of, of our country? How do we make people see themselves and believe in the power of bridging and healing? Mm. How do we get people to actually exercise these skills and practice them when they're going to a dinner party um, with their families in a safe and social distance way on Zoom, you know, since we're in a pandemic right now. Um, yeah. What does that look like? So that's where I am doing all of my work. It's it's really about scale. It's about impact. And I constantly have to question myself because I live in the Bay Area on that foundational assumption of scale. You know, is is scale actually the right way to, to think about this? Because I think you know, we can all be brainwashed in this, this Bay Area culture of like, scale this, scale that. And it's 
sometimes maybe not actually the right way to do something. But in this case, I've thought a lot about it and I've done a lot of thinking. And if you have pushback from me, like, please, somebody out there who is listening, like message me and like, let's continue to have this conversation because I think it's an important foundational assumption to test. But I do think that scale is, is really important. And so that's why I've been focusing so much on culture change, on narrative change, mm-hmm. on, on working with leaders, because that's where so much change is going to happen too. Totally. Yeah. Last question before our rapid fire round, uh, because it's, you know, we're kind of living in it right now. And and there's a lot of division around the U.S. election. You know, there's a lot of people, you know, from the left who kind of feel the narrative that, that I hear a lot in my circles in my bubble is, you know, I can't believe so many people would vote for Trump. And there's sometimes a narrative of like, if you voted for him, you're either racist or at least okay with racism. So I'm just curious, you know, you went in and had these conversations and and facilitated, you know, bridging and and better understanding. What have you learned about kind of the the two sides of of this election? And where do you see a path towards bridging? Yeah, there's such a, a strong tactic and strategy for some people around using shame as a way to get people to change. And for me, it's a it's a form of manipulation and dehumanization, especially when shame is done in these really extreme ways of, of shutting people down, ostracizing them, you know, taking them out of their communities, um, you know, at having them attached to just a single story that doesn't really represent their full-bodiedness, right? And so I have this... Uh, this relationship with shame because as someone that's queer, I lived that life for, for so many years, living within the closet, being full of so much shame about who I am because I thought that the world around me would dismiss me, um, would hate me, would say that my way of living is invalid. And there was this courageousness and this vulnerability that came from me coming out, right? And in many ways, you know, like that is an embodied experience that allows me to empathize with people who feel that way, let's say if they vote for Trump, right? Like we might not see eye to eye on a lot of issues, but what I can really relate to them with is that they do feel a sense of shame sometimes if, and and they do feel a sense of fear in expressing in certain spaces, like their viewpoint, because they know that they're going to be called racist. They know they're going to be shut down. They know they might be ostracized. Like no one wants to be ostracized from their family or from their communities. Right. And so I think we need to think of a new tactic and a new strategy, one that doesn't dehumanize people, one that doesn't ostracize people. Instead, one that allows us to build a society where we have racial justice, where we have environmental justice, where we have all these things that we care about, but we get there in a way that doesn't push 70 million plus people into a corner. That's where I'm coming from in a lot of my work. And that's where a lot of my thinking is coming from. And, you know, I think about the LGBTQ movement, you know, I I think about how are we able to achieve so much, like our equality, the Pope came out and said, like, I'm down with this, essentially. There's so much celebration of our community and pop culture. The mindsets and the voting habits around mm. issues that impact us have shifted so dramatically. Like I talked to my elders in my community and they, they're like, I can't even, I couldn't even imagine that this would happen in my lifetime, right? Wow. And, this, and this is something we hear 
from, you know, elders who are black or brown, right? They're like, I can't imagine this reality in our lifetime where there, there is going to be more acceptance, where there is going to be less violence. But with the LGBTQ movement, I've been thinking a lot about like, why did this happen? How was this so successful? And, you know, I will preface like there's still so much we need to to change still in our movement, especially around transphobia and especially around, you know, the ways that we treat us folks um, as a society, even with our, within our own community towards um, non-binary or genderqueer or trans folks. But for the large part, there is an incredible celebration of our community. Mm-hmm. The reasons why I think that happened was because of the coming out movement. You know, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, black or brown, young or old, like you probably know someone who is queer or who is trans or who is non-binary or gender non-conforming. And because it crosses so many aspects of society, that through the power of those relationships, that's my sister, that's my, that's my daughter, that's my parent, uh, that's my friend, that's my neighbor, it allowed people's mindsets and behaviors to shift really dramatically on an accelerated pace. But when you look at all of these other identities and all these other issues that we're trying to move through, let's talk about race or even like the age divide, like, okay, boomer, right? Like we are so segregated. We are segregated across race. We are segregated segregated across age. And, and so we need to shift that. We actually need to be in relationship with people who are very different from us, more integrated. And then when we start to open up and we start to come out and we start to share our perspectives and where we're coming from, the harm that we're experiencing, the harm that people in our groups are experiencing, that's when we're going to actually see shifts. Mm. That's when we're actually going to see change. And we're going to see it at an accelerated pace. And so that's my beacon. like That's my lighthouse. And that's why yeah. I think prioritizing relationships is at the core of everything. And that's why if you are a community manager, let's say even at a company, like your role at getting these really diverse folks together to build belonging, to integrate, is key to even these societal challenges we're trying to all solve right now. Because when you build those deep relationships between people, and if those people tend to be different and would otherwise not meet, they're only meaning because they share an interest in your brand or in the hobby or the whatever you're building a community around. Like there is so much power there. There is so much possibility for change. Yeah. And so like keep going and like keep doing your work and keep actually building meaningful relationships between people who are different. I love it. Yeah, I really like that framing of kind of the shame versus just working toward progress in a way, right? And the LGBTQ movement is a great example of that where, yeah, if, if it was just all about shaming everyone who was homophobic or transphobic and just like, you're a terrible person, done, then like there's not a lot of progress to be had there. And it's not about accepting transphobia or homophobia, but it's about kind of like seeing people where they are and, and trying to work together to get to the point where, you know, like you said, we're in a much better place there's still a lot long way to go, but we're in a much better place for the LGBTQ community than we were before. And people that were like, you know, would have been shamed before and and would have been called, you know, transphobic and homophobic are now like supporters and advocates. Yes. Um, And that's where the change really happens. Yeah. You know, who's a really damn good bridger, Dolly Parton. She's like a great example of an amazing bridger. You go to one of her shows and you see like drag queens, you see like queer folks, you see like folks in cowboy boots, 
folks from like Eastern Tennessee. Like it's, she is able to bring so many different kinds of people through the power of her music. Mm -hmm. And she has her point of view and she's able to talk about her differences. Let's say even the gender barriers that she had to, to move through as a, as a singer, as a performer, as a songwriter, and to be really vigilant and to really bend the arc towards justice and peace. And, and she didn't necessarily settle or be complicit, right. In, in, in the status quo. And like, mm-hmm. I always like, when people ask me like, who's a really good bridger, I'm like, Dolly Parton, like, listen be to like Dolly Parton. Like, like, listen. Yeah. Be, that's your mantra. Be Dolly Parton. Like, like, <laughs> I'm on the Dolly Parton train. Like she is amazing. She gives a hundred dollars to every woman who graduates high school in her County. Like she created the infrastructure for a distributed network of community building nonprofits called imagination libraries. Like she's amazing. She is so great. I get Dolly Parton on this show. Yeah. If you got Dolly Parton on the show, that would be so game over. Be like Dolly Parton. Love it. Awesome. All right. Well, that's a great segue into everyone's favorite part of the podcast, the rapid fire question round. Are you ready? Rapid fire questions and rapid fire answers. We have like a, a Dolly Parton, like music song that goes into <laughs> like rapid fire. That'd be cool. Okay. Uh, yes, I'm ready. That's, that's yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send that request to the editing team. All right. First question. What's your favorite book to recommend to others? Oh, since this is about community, uh, Get Together is a really great book. Kevin was on this podcast too. Oh, great. Love Kevin. Um, also, um, I highly recommend this book by Bell Hooks. It's called All About Love. It's so mm-hmm. good. Love is at the heart of bridging and it's at the heart of my life. And if you want to have more meaningful relationships, like All About Love by Bell Hooks. Boom. Love it. Question two, who's an up and coming community builder creator that you recommend we all follow? I'm all about elevating community builders who are coming from, even though I hate this term, the global South, uh, folks that are thinking about uh, community in a totally different way, I actually just recommended them or nominated them and that like thing y'all did. Um, so Daniela Restrepo Ortos, she's from Colombia. I want to put her name out there. Uh, she's uh, an emerging leader and designer um, at IDEO. And then another dear friend who's also from Colombia, they just have like badass women, um, Luisa Covaria, who's at Open IDEO. They both do incredible work around being strategic thinkers and and actually like leaning into community in a different way than you've ever seen, especially in a more like US or Europe centric viewpoint. Love it. Awesome. All right. Number three, what's your go-to self-care practice? I take a walk every day. I live in Mill Valley on this mountain and I'm so fortunate because um, in this pandemic, um, being, you know, quarantining and, and being separated from folks. Um, there's this path that's 45 minutes long and it, it starts from my house, goes out through my backyard and goes down towards Mirror Woods and then loops back to my house. And I divide it into three parts. The first part is a 10 minute video message that I record on my phone to someone that I've lost contact with and I, and I send it to them. The second half is about being super present about the leaves and the trees and like everything that's around me, the birds, the sounds, everything I'm hearing. And then the last part is about just like focusing on my breath and like what I'm feeling on my body. And sometimes I interchange it. It's not necessarily in that order, but that is a huge self-care practice for me every single day, 45 minutes. Love it. I'm a big walker as well. Love it. All right. Number four, what's your favorite question to ask people when facilitating a discussion? Ooh, what are you not getting right now that you wish you were getting? Mm. Yeah. What is something, what, you know, I think that our, our culture 
has created like a lot of people pleasers, myself included. And we thus, it's harder for us to like name our needs and actually express what it is we really want. So by like directly asking someone what they want or need in a surprising context, it like reminds them that it's really important for them to stay keyed into what they want and need. And Mm. hey, even better if they're able to articulate what they want and need, because that helps you as a facilitator really guide the context of that conversation. Love it. Great one. What's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? Oh, oh my God. I'm in so many weird communities. Um, (laughs) How would you define weird? Sorry. I love asking this question to people in the Bay Area. It's just like too many to choose from. Yeah. Like weird as in like it's out there. Whatever your definition of weird is. Okay, weird to me is like it's powerful. It's 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 actually a powerful word and it's something like I I hope one day, like when my eulogy is read, like someone will say that I am weird because that is like a North Star for me. I'll do that. I'll show up and I'll be like, Scott was weird. Get off the stage. I love it. (laughs) And play a Jolly Parton song. Um, So so the the weirdest community I've been a part of, which is actually a really powerful community, is the end of life space. Like people who are working on helping people move through their end of life anxiety. That's right. Or helping people die in a more meaningful way. I went to your event that you facilitated. It's like such a weird space because everyone's like, why would you be in a community with people who think about death and talk about death all the time? Yeah. I forgot. I forgot that. Yeah. I went to, I experienced my own death in that event that you, you organized and, uh, that was something. It was something else. Well, you still remember it, so that means it was resonant. I do. <laughs> so, yeah. You remember your death, that's yeah, for sure. Right, right. We hope, we hope. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I think that was fascinating, and I would love to see more people really have conversations and experiences around the concept of death. Yeah. Uh, topic for another episode. Okay, well, this is a perfect segue to my last question. If you are on your deathbed, and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one tweet-sized piece of advice for the rest of the world, what would that advice be? Lead with curiosity. Just be more curious. Embrace curiosity. Be a seeker. Ask questions you know, about yourself, about others, about the world around you. And I promise you, if you lead with curiosity, you'll become a better leader. You'll find more spaces for creativity. You will bridge the divides better and you will have a more full life and you'll you'll find aliveness at every corner of your life story love it great way to end all right scott uh where where can people find you where can they go to follow you and all the work you're doing yeah you can check out my website scottshigeoka.com and then you can also follow me on instagram scottshigeoka s-h-i-g-e-o-k-a I highly recommend you do that. There's a ton of amazing projects that Scott's working on that we didn't even get to cover here. Scott, I just have to say how much I appreciate you and all the work that you've done. You're you're clearly really passionate about about this, about the work of bridging and bringing people together. And you're someone who takes a lot of risks, both creatively and personally and emotionally. And uh, just watching your journey over the years for as long as I've known you has been an inspiration for me. And Every time I see you launch one of these projects, I'm like, ah, one day, if I want to do something new, it's amazing to see the work that you're doing. And I think you're one of the people that will genuinely make the world a better place. So thank you for everything you're doing. And thanks for taking the time to uh, hang out with me today. Yeah, thanks, friend. This is great. Awesome. All right, everyone. We'll see you next time. 
The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoy this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.